0: Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling one 877 780 one eight seven 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 eight zero seven two.
1: A fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of life. Welcome
0: to another episode of Mormon Discussion. Glad to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook under LDS Leadership Principles. You can find this podcast at mormondiscussion.podbean.com as well as on iTunes. We also have our blog, themormondiscussion.blogspot.com. Nick Galetti, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I am doing excellent. Thank you for having me. Good. Nick Galetti is the uh, host of the Good Word podcast, which is an excellent podcast. I'd recommend to all my listeners. I will leave a link uh, to his site uh, on the introduction to this podcast. And, and Nick, we'll get to the point where hopefully you can share a little bit about that and tell us what the, where the site's at as well. The Good Word podcast uh, interviews authors and writers of various uh, directions and In uh, interest and just really captures, I think, the Latter-day Saints who are, who are writing great things in a, in a wonderful time. I want to know, I want to back up though, Nick. I want to, uh, have you tell me a little bit about your growing up years so that we can get a feel for you and then lead into how you got into this. Okay. Well, I, I grew up in the church, uh, uh, basically. I, I will say that because my, my mother was a member, but my father is still not to this day. So I was raised in the LDS faith. My grandfather was essentially the priesthood holder that ordained me and and kind of moved me through the course of of growing up through the priesthood. I actually grew up in San Diego, California, and I'll tell you this brief story about really what I consider my initial conversion came when I was about 13 years old, and it was right when the San Diego Temple was being uh, dedicated and there was an open house, and this was my first time, actually, I think I might have been fourteen. This was my first time doing anything public with the church, and what I mean by that is I was as as one of the young uh i guess the what did they call it back then it was the young adult program or or whatever the mutual and I was a teacher, a deacon or teacher, and we were invited to take tickets to the open house. And we would knock doors in random neighborhoods in San Diego and offer tickets to people to go to see the open house. Now, if you've been to San Diego or seen pictures of it, it's a very interesting location. It's right by the freeway, major freeway, and everybody knew about it. The news was always reporting about it. And for a non-LDS area, that's a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. And so when we handed out tickets, we were tracting at age 13 and 14 and handing out these tickets to strangers um, but when it came time to the open house, I was there serving, we all had a chance to serve at the open house, and my service was to wash the wheels of the wheelchairs, the people that came on wheelchairs that were going to go through the temple. I had to wash every single one of them, and it was an interesting experience for me, I didn't see it at the time, but I felt and knew at that time, that what I was doing was what God wanted me to do, and as a result, because I was doing something for His church, I I also knew that the church was true, and from that moment, I have you know progressed and I've kept a testimony of the church and and things like that. It's not that I never had a, a challenge to my faith, and we can talk about that a little later, but it was from that moment where I really had a testimony of the church. And ironically, as I got older, I realized that what I was doing was washing the metaphorical feet of these people. And it made me feel like part of what I was doing was was what Christ would do if he was there. He would be there washing the wheels of the wheelchairs before they went into the temple. And it, it made me feel a part of his work, and I really appreciated that. You know, growing up in a home where it's a part-member family... In the struggles that come with that. And then having that kind of an experience, can you speak to, I know you served a mission. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to as you, how you, as you're growing up, um, what preparation came for you or what experiences prepared you for that? Well, when I, when the time came where I was supposed to go on a mission and do those things, I really had come to an understanding at that point that my father had chosen to not be a part of my faith and while I know he loves me and I I knew he loved me then and supported me very much so um, in all those decisions I realized that this was a decision that I had to choose while some people may grow up in it thinking that their parents they're doing it because their parents want them to do it I never felt that I always felt that it was something I had to choose and as a result I wasn't going to go do it unless I was I felt prepared to do so. So I was able to look to young men's leaders and those in the church that I felt I respected their testimony and respected what they knew, where they were at. And I I went to them, and I talked to them, and I developed a relationship with them where I felt like this was what I needed to do. And where I was at, again, was reconfirmed. This is what I should be doing. I know that this is what God would have me do. And it was really the support system of everyone Including my father indirectly, where he allowed me to make that decision, uh, that I really felt the strength of the gospel. Where did you serve your mission? Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Tell us about that. Uh, it was not where I thought I was going to get called. Of course, you never know where you're going to get called. I, my, my last name is Goletti. I have Italian background, and I, I always made the joke after I got my mission call that I didn't get called to a country shaped like a boot, but I got called to a state shaped like a boot. So. Is close enough, but I came to, as many do, uh, love the people that I taught. And yet at the same time, I realized that as many people as were baptized while I was in the area and maybe had the opportunity to perform the ordinance, I was very much the most important convert that, that needed to come from my mission because, um, not that others weren't important, but I realized very much that my mission was, was something that I needed to pr- propel me the rest of my life. And I even had kind of, I wouldn't call it a faith crisis as much of an identity crisis. Right. When I first came out, I had a a great mission trainer who was, who n- knew the mission rules very well, knew the gospel very well. It was his last two months of his mission were the first two months of mine. But, He ended up getting mono, and we ended up spending almost a month inside the apartment. And that's not, what do you do when you're on a mission and you've got nothing else to do with your time but kind of sit there and read the scriptures? So I kind of went through and I studied the gospel, but even more importantly, I needed to come to find who I was within the gospel plan. And what I mean by that is I felt like in some ways the only way I could be a good missionary is if I do it exactly how my trainer did it, and I went to my mission president in our, in our regular interviews, and I, I told him that I was feeling kind of a, a very strong loss of identity, and that I didn't have a place. And he told me something that I, I still have not forgotten. But he said the Lord called Nick Galetti. He said Elder Galetti, but he, Nick, he he called Elder Galetti to serve in this mission at this time because he needs you. He doesn't need another whoever these other guys are, he needs you. And it was from that moment that I realized that who I was was nothing that I should be ashamed of. And who I was was something that God needed. And it's nice to be felt, you know, to feel needed in in the gospel work. And there's a lot of people that don't get that. But I took the time when I had it to figure out what my mission and role was in the gospel. And so my mission provided that for me. Excellent. You're right. We, we're all different and we all need to just be ourselves and not try to be someone else. Uh, just a side question serving in Louisiana. Did you, uh, enjoy the cuisine? Oh yeah. I still make it awesome. all the time. Uh, and, and I, I love to cook. So my family gets their red beans and rice and their jambalaya. We just made gumbo last week. So yeah, it still happens. It's been 13 years or 14 years. So I'd have to look at the exact date, but about About 13 or 14 years, and I still, every day or every week, we make something. Awesome. What uh, If we fast forward just a little bit, you come off your mission. What gets you heading in towards the career of being a sound engineer? I was a musician for a while. I mean, I grew up in high school going in in marching band and the usual things. I was a music major my first year of college before my mission. But I realized that music as a performance was not – a what I felt like I wanted to do anymore, uh, wasn't as viable for an income for making you know for a family. Not that being sound engineers, just you know, I'm swimming in the cash or anything. But I um I felt like that was the way that I could contribute in a world and an industry um, that perhaps needed you know a good influence. Uh, I I always you know kind of pictured myself being a rock star at some point in high school. And my leaders wisely used to tell me there's always room at the top for people to do it right. Never get sucked into that lifestyle. And so there was a part of what I wanted to be able to do was to be in an industry that I felt like, you know, perhaps needed a a little help in the morality department. Um, Eventually I learned that I was actually quite decent at it and I enjoyed the work and so I, it just kind of naturally flowed that way. So let's now take another jump. So you're going from a sound engineer to doing a podcast where you're interviewing LDS uh, authors and writers. What was that transition? What caused that to happen? Well, on my mission, I I had this thought I, as I was reading Lehi's vision of the tree of life. I said, it seems like there's a parallel to the tree of life and the sacrament. I'm not sure what it is. And I even wrote it in my journal. I just, I'm not sure what this is, but it might be worth studying. 12 years later, I decide to take what I've studied since then and put it into more of a concise format. And it ended up being a book. And I met Brett Eborn of Eborn Books. And he, he liked what I wrote and he decided to publish it. So fast forward another two years after that, um, I had made documentaries for him uh, based on books that he had published, and we just developed a relationship. So when he opened this 30,000-square-foot bookstore in downtown Salt Lake, we thought, well, here's an opportunity to make a place for individual authors such as myself who We're looking for avenues for publicity to get their work out, not to make millions of dollars or, you know, profit off of things. But if you write something for LDS people, you are passionate about it and you want people to read it. So that involves being, you know, doing some publicity. So we started thinking of different ways that that could happen. And I had just had a studio and a recording studio. In, uh, in Taylorsville, Utah, that we had to close the doors on for a couple different reasons. Um, but I was looking for a new space and I thought, well, what if I open up a kind of a smaller vocal studio within the bookstore? We'll interview authors and then I would also have a space to do my work. So it ended up being that I felt like I wanted as an LDS author to have an avenue for publicity but it also worked out that I needed a space to do my sound engineering. And the, the two just kind of came together. Excellent. I want to kind of tie now you into what my podcast usually talks about, which is issues of faith crisis and difficult issues. And I want to approach it this way with you. Uh, your podcast, uh, while certainly dealing with some of the well-known authors, um, you also seem driven to um, draw attention to lesser-known folks who have put together uh great and work written works, and I want you to talk about them in a moment. But with some of the authors you've interviewed, like Brian Hales and Robert millet, uh, both of those uh, gentlemen deal with either difficult issues like in Brian Hale's case with polygamy, or in Robert millet's case, dealing with a uh, conversation back and forth with evangelicals, uh, helping latter day saints better understand the doctrine of grace what is what is having spoken to those uh, those men and other people you've interviewed? How has that impacted your understanding of the gospel and and maybe some of those difficult issues that they talk about? Well, that's a good question because some of these people, I just get sent their information from a publisher. It says, here, we'd like you to interview these people, and we go through and do the process. And it's not that those are less substantive or that there's not any worth to it, but there are some people that I really look forward to interviewing because of what they can offer me and hopefully my listeners as far as what they have to share. Uh, there was another one, for example, uh, the authors of a book called Are We Special uh, that I would also recommend people look at. And it's a it's a kind of a mental health approach. But the idea is, is that it helps you look outside of maybe your current paradigm of people's experience with the gospel and, and the challenges that they may face. I've come to the very hard conclusion that people will experience God in different ways. And that there's no fair or accurate way to appraise whose experience is of greater worth than mine. And I think when I listen to these interviews with these people, I'm able to learn how these people have experienced the gospel. How it's blessed their life and why they've been so blessed by it and so motivated that they've turned around and gone through. And it's it's sometimes a very lengthy process to write a book and get it published. And I have a lot of respect for what these individuals bring to the table in that respect. Um, you know, sometimes we interview a fiction person, but even within fiction authors, they have a message that they want to share and one that they feel can help, you know, your life enjoyment, your life experience. And so in just learning and meeting these people, I've come to the conclusion that there are so many people within the LDS faith, these writers, that really want what's best for people. They're really well-motivated people. And with people like Brian Hales, who I I listened to your interview with him. And it's funny as I side note, it's funny to listen to you ask some of the questions that I, I I go, Oh man, that was a really good question. I, why didn't I ask that? Uh, but in going through interview with, with these people, I've, I've very much come to the conclusion that, um, that the the motivations of these people are so genuine and so pure that it's hard to deny. Excellent. And and maybe if you can speak to one, I know you partly addressed it there, but one of the things I find really cool about your podcast is that it would be really easy to run around and grab the really popular authors that everybody knows about and to plug their book. But what you've done is also take a lot of authors who are completely unknown uh, to us and you've found something worthwhile to give them an opportunity, like you say, to share their message. Um, maybe you could speak for just a moment on how you've used the podcast to, like you say, help people who, uh, otherwise would never even be known to share their material. Well, I'm, I'm pretty unknown. I mean, I, I'm not striving for popularity myself either, but there are a lot of people who have a very good message that need to be heard, and there's not very many platforms for them to be heard. Um, I, I mean, no ill will against Deseret Book and their mission and the things that they have to do, but it's, it's simply just not practical to think that they can publish everything that people write and that need to be published or that people want to hear. Um, partially because of their connection with the church and this, I don't know, possibly a rational conclusion that people come to that if Deseret Book publishes it, it must be doctrine. Uh, and so there's some, I I think some reluctance on their part to publish just some of the stuff that they think has got great value but won't publish it. Well, being who they are and where they're at in the marketplace, they get – the the, the vehicle is built in for a lot of really good solid publicity. Well, if you're not with Deseret Book, you don't have access to that channel. And so there are, again, a lot of people who write works that are good, that are substantial – And they are stories or lessons that need to be told, but they don't necessarily need to be told through that channel. And so I I really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, let's just say, level the playing field and and put someone that's maybe lesser well-known up against a Robert Millett and understand that what they're saying could be of equal value. Just because Robert Millett sold thousands of copies, whereas this person maybe has sold hundreds, doesn't mean that their value is any different than what they offer. And so I, I just want to be able to give them a platform. Right. So rather than judge the author or the book based on the popularity of the author, to judge it on the substance of the material it's Absolutely. in the pages. That's wonderful. I know that you uh, you did a documentary on the murder of the prophet uh, Joseph Smith, and I think my listeners will be very interested to, to listen to, to your thoughts on that. Can you explain to my listeners what the documentary is, uh, where they can find it, and what your thoughts were as you put that together? Well, the book that it was based on is called Murder of the Mormon Prophet by Legrand L. Baker. That book was published by Eborn Books, who also you know, produced the documentary that we did. And that book compiled over 30 years of history. And it was a history that involved a lot of the newspapers of the time, which presents a unique perspective that most people gather. Uh, a lot of historians will pick from the other historical books of the time, but few actually go to the newspapers, which, uh, I believe as the author puts it is, if you want facts, you can, you can read the books. If you want to know the current sentiment of the people of the time, you need to read the newspapers. And so a lot of what needed to go, go into the story of, of Joseph Smith's death, and we use the term murder because we really believe that it was calculated cold-blooded murder. This was not a spontaneous, uh, you know, mob uprising. Uh, people had other things to do with their time. They didn't just sit around going, when, when, when can we mob something? This was very, very calculated. And so the last six years of Joseph Smith's life is really what you're going to find in this book. And it's not so much about Joseph Smith as much as it is about those who put together the collusion and the effort to see that he was no longer uh, an influence. There were some that thought that he would th- that his death would end Mormonism. Uh, when in reality, what we can see is that his blood fertilized the effort, and uh, it's the the documentary itself is kind of the cliff notes of the book. The book is seven hundred plus pages; it's an extremely thorough history, and I would recommend people going out and, and reading the book. But it also, I understand that there's not. Always going to be something that you can take on that size. And so the documentary's there. We went to Nauvoo. We went to the lesser publicized area of Warsaw, which is where a lot of anti-Mormonism came. Uh, and we, we went through the town and we searched their archives and we went to this place that was the Nauvoo expositor, uh, or the, excuse me, the Warsaw signals printing office and one of, You know, the Warsaw Signal was a paper that was very influential in in the anti-Mormon movement. There's a lot of things that even myself, I didn't know growing up. There's a lot of things about the story that just don't get told. I didn't know that the term anti-Mormon was actually first part of a political party. There's an anti-Mormon political party like the Whigs and the Democrats. And they were very strongly voiced in the area where they were at and... A lot of their efforts and a lot of their, the minutes of their political meetings to their, their efforts, their organized efforts to, to take down the church were printed in the Warsaw Signal. And, and so there's just so much to the story that people don't know about, I think. And in the end, there's a lot of, you, you might find some different controversy regarding, uh, Joseph's final words and, was he really a, a lamb going to the slaughter and things like that? And one of the things that we hope to be able to do in the process was tell the real story, tell it in the language and perspective of the time, but even more importantly, the legalities of the time. Uh, there, there are people that will look at the destruction of the Navu Expositor newspaper and have, you know, hold issue with what happened there and uh, there's just so much that can be placed in a better context to help answer some of the mentality at the time. And, and really that's kind of what we hope to, to do with that documentary. Excellent. Where can they find that? It can be found, uh, actually there are copies at Deseret Books, um, uh, different ones. You can order it online. Uh, you can order it through ebornbooks.com and a couple other LDS retailers, um, that you might find throughout the area. Even in Nauvoo, excellent. I know that, uh like you talked about earlier, you've written some books. I know you've got one that's published, and I believe one that's on the way. Correct. On the way. Mm-hmm. So the one that's published is Tree of Sacrament, mm-hmm. and uh, I wondered if you would tell us, maybe a little bit of your perspective on how this book maybe addresses some some insights into the gospel that that you've uh, that you've discovered. There's a scripture, and I don't have it in front of me right now, but. It's Alma chapter 5, verse 34. I would encourage you to to look at that. And essentially what that says is it's an invitation to come unto Christ. And I believe that, I'm paraphrasing, but I believe it says, Come unto Christ, yea, partake of the fruit of the tree of life, yea, the bread and waters of life freely. And this this invitation to come unto Christ and partake of the fruit of the tree of life is really that moment where I was talking about before where I looked at, Lehi's vision of the Tree of Life. I looked at other, you know, examples and, and references to the Tree of Life, but I, I realized that there was something going on in that vision that pertained to the sacrament that helped me personally to know that that ordinance itself carries with it a tremendous strength that a lot of people miss on a weekly basis. It could be because they're picking up the spilled Cheerios in sacrament meeting that their children dropped. It could be because they have a text message that they just have to answer. There's a lot of things that either distract or promote a sense of casualness towards the sacrament. And when I looked at the vision of Lehi with the Tree of Life, and I thought about those people that had to make their way through the darkness. They had to pray to find their way to the iron rod. And once they had that iron rod, what it took for them to get to that tree. And then I started thinking about the weekly process that we seem to start on Mondays and end on Sunday when we partake of the sacrament. The things that we need to do every single day in order to continue on that path. And on one level I just kind of thought about what what would that change? What would that change if I really read my scriptures every day? If I prayed intently every day? If I saw the great and spacious building, but decided to stay on the iron rod. What would that mean when I go to the sacrament table and partake of that ordinance? Would it mean the same that it did to Lehi? Would I feel the same way that Lehi felt as he partook of that fruit? Is there a way to get that experience to match and, As I studied, and as I, and if you, you know, pick up the book, you can read some of what went into this. But I realized that the process of developing faith is the same process that Lehi talks about in going along the path, the iron rod to the tree. But it's the same path that we walk every week as we take the sacrament. And we don't have time to go into all the details, but if you read Alma chapter 32 and understand that the very end of that chapter, when it's talking about this seed of faith as it grows, it grows up to a tree of life, not just any tree of life, but a tree of life that springs up within ourselves. And I think that the individuality, the relationship that the sacrament can breed within us with a relationship to God is so sacred and it's so often overlooked and that was really the motivation behind it but hopefully through the things that are in the book people can really go to the sacrament and feel like lehi felt as he partook of that fruit and understand that there's no reason why that shouldn't happen you know you you brought up and i just want to draw attention to this Alma chapter 32 and then in the you know beginning of the book of mormon where nephi talks about his father's dream and and recounts uh, the interpretation of it it's no coincidence that in Alma 32, Alma almost uses the exact same phraseology when speaking about what this seed of faith grows into, that this tree will be white above all that is white, right? Pure Absolutely. above all that is pure. He, he very much is drawing on the words of Nephi early on in the Book of Mormon. Uh, and I find that very interesting. And, and just to maybe make a point for as you're talking about, the deeper we dive into the scriptures, the more we'll get below just the surface of the history of what these these prophets did, but get to the doctrine of Christ, which is taught so beautifully in the Book of Mormon. As you put this book together and as you're delving into the sacrament and pondering its connection to the tree of life, what did that do for your own faith? Well, one of the things that I realized is that the scriptures are filled with patterns and that those patterns teach us about God, our relationship to him. And so When I saw this pattern, when I saw Nephi, as you referred to, talking about how really the tree of life is the love of God and really is a representation of Christ himself, and here I am every Sunday going and partaking of these emblems of of Christ's sacrifice, how can I not go to that with some sense of sincerity and, and love for what his atonement means for me? So what ended up happening for me in my faith, if you will, is that I every every week I started to find myself appreciating more what the atonement meant. And that any of the other things that I might have heard during the week, it could have been anything from some social issues we've talked about, you know, women in the priesthood, whatever it is, I can sit there in that moment of the sacrament and know that everything, and I mean everything else, becomes secondary to what is happening in that moment. And what's happening is I'm connecting with my heavenly father through the savior and that there's nothing else that matters. As long as that connection is there, all those other things will fill into that. If I develop that love, that, that first great commandment, and I have an appreciation for what has been done for me, why I'm here, why Christ died, everything else becomes far less relevant. That's a great point. Elder Hellstrom, I believe it was two conferences ago, maybe three, talked about the difference between the church and the gospel. And he made the comment that, do we understand the changing power of the sacrament? And often as members, we think the sacrament is there to bring us back up to where we were last Sunday. Right. Just to renew us, right? Just to bring us back to par even. Yeah. In reality, the sacrament is designed to sanctify us or if we'd use it properly to change us make us more Christ like so i really i think your book uh, would be a, a wonderful opportunity for people to get to to see those insights that you make to make that connection and to realize the sanctifying power that the sacrament has and so i would encourage listeners to to check out tree of sacrament the other book that you are i think is getting really close to being published it's it's Currently at the printers. Okay, that's wonderful. It's called Exaltation Equation. Yeah. That's an interesting name. Uh Fill me in on what this book uh, touches on. I mentioned before that my mission was to the South, which filled with Baptists and, and a number of other religions that are very grace-heavy. You know, there's no place for works. Everything is very grace-heavy. And, and, of course, we feel that there is an, a, a balance there. We very much recognize the grace of God the Father and the atonement and what that does for us. Um, But we also recognize, as James did in the New Testament, that there is a place for works as a demonstration, and, uh, if you will, uh, of our commitment to God and to be like him. Well, what I wanted to do when I originally did this, this actually came from a gospel doctrine teacher. I'm a gospel doctrine – or excuse me, a gospel doctrine lesson. Um, I think it was last year um, where we were talking about faith and grace, and I was just trying to come up with a way to explain it to the class that was different but was still on a solid foundation. So I will give you the equation. I can't explain it all. That's what the whole book's for. Sure, absolutely. Just tease it. But the, the equation itself is, if I just go with mathematic letters, is F to the power of G equals J. And what that stands for is faith to the power of grace equals justification. And the book essentially lays out and defines all three of those terms, how they relate to each other. But the basics of it are that I consider, and there is reason to believe, that the term faith, when used in a Greek definition, implies a trust. But not just any trust, but a covenant trust, where God gives us a commandment, gives us a work to do, and we promise to do that work in return. As we do that, he blesses us with his grace. Which I think Brother Wilcox gives a fantastic, uh, definition of it. In fact, I have his permission to quote a good portion of his works in, in that book to, for those that aren't familiar with it, but I help hopefully place p- that in context with faith. Um, but in a mathematical sense, um, if we look at faith as works, if we just kind of equate those two, if we do nothing, if we, if we just sit, and do nothing. Or if we do works that are negative, destructive, and do that to the power of an infinite atonement, or God's grace, it is of no benefit to us. It equals nothing. In other words, we're not justified in God's eyes. We're not doing his work. But whatever that effort is, even if it's of a mustard seed, if it's .001, and you do that to the infinite power, then we are aligned with God's will. We are justified to God's will. And it kind of goes along with this growing faith that ultimately that number that we may quantify as our faith, or which is, you know, metaphorically, I should say, whatever that number is, whatever our works are, if it's a positive number, then God's grace will amplify that and it will, and we will be justified to his work and doing his work. And that comes in a lot of different varieties. It has a lot of different implications. And again, we won't go into all that. And there's a lot of support to how faith works in creation. Elder McConkie talks about how it's necessary, not just a good idea, but necessary to understand the doctrine of faith and creation if we are to be exalted. And I hopefully give some Food for thought with respect to faith and creation and how that works in with God's grace. So that's, that's kind of a, if you will, a tease on what that equation is about. And, and it's funny as I've shown it to a couple of people to get reviews back on it. They go, you know, there's so many other mathematical equations within the gospel. And what I love about that is so many people relegate faith to the domain of the irrational and yet Here I'm attempting to show something mathematically per something hopefully rational and show how the gospel principles do interlock. They do equal each other. There is some sense and there is some uh, organization and order to the gospel that is rational and can be quantified and determined in other terms. Sure, it's a metaphor, really. It's just a metaphorical teaching. But that there's really something more to it than that. And to look more deeply on that will open a huge door. As you're sharing that, a quote comes to mind from somebody you interviewed, Robert Millett. And Millett, Brother Millet says that real faith turns into faithfulness. And when one is expressing faithfulness, one is taking their faith and doing something proactive with it, which is really what you speak to the heart of. Uh, Nick Letty, I'm grateful to have you on Mormon Discussion today and, uh, and really appreciate you being on. Uh, where can the people find your podcast? Well, there's, uh, it is on iTunes, although I, I haven't found the miracle formula to get it up higher in the ranks. But if you, if you search the Good Word podcast in iTunes, you can find it. We're also available on the Stitcher app. Um, there's a couple other app platforms, but, uh, our main site is radiogoldproductions.com forward slash the good word. Excellent. Nicoletti, thank you again for joining us on that more discussion. Thank you for having me.
1: Come thou fount of every blessing. to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming love Here I raise my Ebenezer Here by thy great help I've come And I hope by thy good pleasure Safely to arrive at home Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God To rescue me from danger Interposed His precious blood blood. Oh, that day when freed from sinning I shall see Thy lovely face Clothed then in blood-washed linen How I'll sing Thy sovereign grace Come, my Lord, no longer tarry Take my ransom soul away Send Thine angels now to carry Me to realms of endless day